standing out of love for Jesus Christ and turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, it's always a useful and helpful thing to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together as God's people. And so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby and turn to page 613 for this morning's text. Over the last few weeks of Advent, we have been in the midst of a four-week series through the four servant songs of Isaiah, and we have finally reached what is in many ways not just the crescendo of the servant songs, but the startling and stunning crescendo of Isaiah's entire ministry as well. And so we've seen in recent weeks the first servant song was about God's promise of his servant for the burdened, a servant that would extend justice to all the earth. In the second servant song, we saw God's promise of a servant for the nations, that he was going to redeem people from every tribe and tongue. And then last week, we saw God's promise of a servant for the weary, uh, particularly and uniquely, we are told that this servant is going to have scholarly skill in sustaining weak and weary sinners uh, with his word. And so as we read through our text, 15 verses in just a second, maybe the question to have in the back of your mind is, how does this text uniquely speak of the servant to come? Or maybe put it more pointedly, for whom is this servant coming? What work is he going to do? So let me go ahead and read our text, which is verse 13 of Isaiah 52, all the way through the end of chapter 53, and then pray for our time, and then we will begin our study together. So let us hear now, for God means to show us His Son through His Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, 
and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us bow in prayer together. Father, we come to an amazing and astonishing text this morning, aware that the week has provided many distractions from who you are, from who Jesus Christ is for us, and so we pray that you would clear those away, that we might see him clearly this morning, that as he is revealed in the might and majesty of this prophetic poem, that we would behold him, look upon him, as our atoning sacrifice, and so find life in his name. So give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak as it must, boldly and clearly. Let us be aware that we stand this morning, sitting, listening, speaking, as dying people, not even promised tomorrow. So help us to hear, help me to preach as though eternity awaits, for we know that it does. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It truly is one of the more stunning missionary texts in all the New Testament. You have a man named Philip. Just a few months prior, maybe even a few weeks before, Philip was one of seven men that were first appointed as deacons in the early church. Not very long, it all goes by, and one of those deacons, a man named Stephen, preaches a sermon and is subsequently killed for his faith in Jesus Christ, and the church is scattered. And so Philip, we're told, goes down to the city of Samaria. And it's there that he preaches Jesus Christ to the Samaritans. And evidently, his preaching was full of great power because we're told that miracles and conversions abounded in the city of Samaria, so much so that we're told in the Bible that great joy was found in that city. And one night, while Philip is in Samaria, an angel of the Lord comes to him, or maybe it's during the daytime, and says, hey, get up and go to the desert. So off. Philip goes to this roadside desert place. And as he's there, he sees a chariot coming along. As in this chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch reading from the scroll of Isaiah out loud. And Philip, the ever eager and earnest evangelist, uh, cries out to this man in the chariot, Hey, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, How can I unless someone guides me? So he invites Philip into his chariot. And in Acts chapter 8, we're told now the passage of Scripture that the eunuch was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Our text this morning. And what we're told is that Philip subsequently preaches Jesus Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch. And so for centuries... And centuries, our text today has been a hotbed of Christ-centered preaching. 
If you wanted to know the truth about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, from the Old Testament, you could turn to few better places than the fourth servant song in Isaiah, the good news of a slaughtered, crushed, servant, suffering Savior. One scholar calls this text the jewel in the crown of Isaiah's theology. A best-selling author recently published a book just on this chapter in Isaiah, subtitled, The Most Remarkable Chapter in All the Old Testament. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest, at least the most famous, English preacher of the 19th century, was once hanging out with the great evangelist named D.L. Moody, and Moody was asked if his doctrine, if his creed, the summary of his beliefs, was ever put into print. And Moody said, yes, it is. It's the 53rd of Isaiah, saying it's the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, going on to say, in there is the whole gospel. It is the entire Bible in miniature. And so we come to no small text this morning. And I wonder, as you were listening to it read and looking through it, who is the servant for, according to this text? We've seen that God is preparing a single, solitary, yet majestic servant for the burdened, for the nations, for the weary. And here today we find God's servant for the guilty. God's servant for the guilty. So it's 15 verses long, as you probably noticed, quite packed. Scholars have identified five different stanzas in this song, which is really a prophetic poem. So three different verses in each stanza. And so we want to see this morning five simple truths about the coming Messiah. Five simple truths, essential points to know about God's servant. The first of which is the servant will be exalted. So look at how the song begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. God, Yahweh, the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. I think it's better translated, will be successful. Behold, my servant will be successful, and he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Now careful readers of Isaiah have already heard that phrase, high and lifted up. It shows up in a very famous scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where we're told Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, gets a vision of heaven. And what does he see? The Lord, high and lifted up. So in just the same way as Yahweh is high and lifted up beyond the nations, beyond the universe even in his might and majesty, his splendor, beauty and glory, so too will this servant be high and lifted up before the world. For notice verse 15 We're told he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. So worldwide exaltation awaits this Savior. There's a day coming when this servant is going to be unveiled before the world and kings, governments, and rulers will shut their mouths. They will finally understand what they have heard. Finally see even what they have rejected. And so by this point in Isaiah's ministry, Readers, especially original readers, with something of bated breath, gasping, longing for the revelation of their redemption, would have been waiting for the arm of the Lord to have been revealed. Because the first 39 chapters we mentioned a few weeks ago talks about the exile of God's people. And from chapter 40 on through chapter 66 of Isaiah's ministry, he's prophesying of a coming exodus. And that exodus was often spoken of, the first exodus in the Old Testament was spoken of as the arm of the Lord. 
With a mighty arm and an outstretched hand, He redeemed Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And it's a, it's a mighty arm of the Lord. Kids, you might think about it. If you want to know someone's strength, you'll say, show me your muscles. Flex your arms. And when God flexed His arms, it often was quite stunning to see. Hailstones rained down from heaven like fists. Waters parted. The oceans split so that God's people might find deliverance. And they're waiting for the arm of the Lord to show up the second time. For notice verse 10 of chapter 52. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Then look at the second question of verse 1 in chapter 53. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So they're looking for the Lord's arm to finally show up and bring salvation. I'm sure like many of you do, I spend quite a few hours throughout the week listening to music, and most of my music listening experience is taken up listening to movie soundtracks. And for a variety of different reasons, I'm somewhat taken with soundtracks from war movies. And I've listened to enough of these soundtracks throughout the year to discern something of a predictable pattern in what you'll hear. Because early on in the opening suite, you get introduced or you are introduced to this main theme. It's moving and it's memorable and you're quite certain that when the story reach its moment, reaches its moment of supreme victory, uh, this theme is going to explode into your ears with tones of triumph. And in many ways, God's Spirit is working through the prophet Isaiah to build a scriptural symphony regarding salvation. And original readers would have, at this moment, been thinking, the volume of victory is about to be turned up to a 10. When in reality, it goes silent. All the instruments fall. You might hear something, and it might just be a plaintive cry that we know from the entirety of Scripture, something you could have heard from a manger bed so many hundreds of years on, or maybe even the graveside of a friend, or maybe even a garden of anguish in the middle of the night. A hillside cross. For notice verse 14 of Isaiah 54. His appearance. This servant was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This unclean servant in the eyes of the world is going to be the one that cleanses the nations through the sprinkling of his blood. No one will want to look at him though. You won't want to gaze into his eyes he won't even look human, the text says. Such will be his agony. And so what we see is God is flipping the world's wisdom upside down, isn't he? Yes, the servant will be exalted. But his exodus, his exaltation is going to come through incredible humiliation, which is what the bulk of this song focuses on. For the servant will be exalted. Secondly, the servant will be rejected. Notice verse 2 of chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. The idea is here, Jesus, this servant to come, he's going to grow up in such a way that he's going to seem irrelevant. He's going to seem insignificant. You wouldn't want to pay attention to him, because why would you pay attention to him? There's no loveliness in his form. There's no power in his words. Why would you want to listen to him? 
And surely some of you may be even in here this morning and that's your ordinary response to Jesus Christ. What's the big deal? Why is all the hullabaloo going about this Christmas season for this man named Jesus Christ? So if verse 2 says not many people are going to pay attention to him, verse 3 says even those that do are going to think it's a waste of their time. Notice verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So kids, students, think about this word at the end of verse 3, esteemed. It's a word that's taken from the accounting world. It means to reckon a value to something or someone. And this is something we tend to do more often than we might be willing to admit or at least realize. So consider it, students, as you begin a new school year, you come into a classroom, maybe with students that you've never seen before, sitting next to them, sizing them up. You see at the front of the room a teacher you've never seen before or spoken with before. And before you realize what you're doing, you're beginning to make a reckoning of them. You're beginning to make an impression of them. Shall I esteem this person or not? And these witnesses that are speaking here in this second stanza are saying, no, he is not worth our attention. He is not worth our time. For what redeemer would be a man of sorrows? What savior would be acquainted with grief? What powerful ruler would be despised and rejected? So again, God is flipping the wisdom of the world upside down for the world is always looking for leaders full of power, and strengths. Yet Jesus Christ is full of meekness and weakness. Don't you remember some scenes from the Gospels? After this sham trial of the ages has declared Jesus Christ to be guilty and he must thus be executed through crucifixion, they blindfold him and rain down their fists upon him and say, hey, if you're really a prophet, prophesy who's hitting you. Then they strip him naked and nail him to a piece of wood Shamed and accursed for all to see, and they crowd, hey, if you're really the Messiah, strong and powerful, get yourself down from there. They wanted a show of might and majesty, and all Jesus gave them was humility, and they rejected him as a result. The servant will be exalted. The servant will be rejected. Thirdly, the servant will be crushed. On Tuesday of this week, my phone, I was up here at the church working and uh, sometime mid-morning, my phone began to buzz with a string of rapid-fire text messages that were saying, evacuate Honeycutt Hall immediately. There's a gas leak. Now, Honeycutt Hall is in a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Honeycutt Hall is in a seminary that I graduated from several months ago. I no longer am a student at that seminary. I don't live in Louisville, Kentucky. And so, therefore, I thought I was quite right, to dismiss this as truth that doesn't belong to me. Now, of course, you can do that of this text. But what you need to understand in this middle stanza, which represents the heart of the gospel in the Old Testament, this is truth for each one of you. For listen to the notes of verse 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It seems to me that verses 1 through 3 find these witnesses saying, we've seen this man despised, man of sorrows, and we've rightly rejected him because he's deserved everything that has come to him. 
But they have this moment of realization, verses 4 and 5 and 6, that no, he is suffering, he is punished, he is enduring incredible affliction, not because he's deserved it. Because you see this like hammer blow that falls in those verses? Because what is it that's resulting in his suffering? Do you see it? It's like a hammer that strikes the soul, isn't it? Our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions. And if it wasn't enough, it sends one more hammer blow to the heart. In verse 6, notice what we're told. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Everyone to his own way. So kids, I don't know what you think about sheep. You know, sheep might be some cute, cuddly, soft creatures or these fluffy, calm animals that you to count as they jump over fences so you can get to sleep at night. But what you need to know in the Bible is that sheep are dumb, stupid animals that get lost and can't rescue themselves. And who are like sheep? Us. Every one of us. Wandering into lostness completely unable to do anything within our own power and ability to rescue ourselves. And so we have a substitute. That's the heart of the gospel. A substitute, the great exchange, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what a savior. He will be crushed. Fourthly, in the next stanza, we see also he will be slaughtered. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. Uh, These verses are meant to show us not only the agony and the grief that awaits God's servant as he's going to be slaughtered like a sheep, but it means to show us also in this fourth stanza that he's innocent. He is utterly innocent of the charges laid against him of the violence, it'll go on to say, that will be done to him. But we dare not mistake his innocence as ignorance. He knew what he was doing. If you've been with us in our study of Luke's gospel over the last 12 months or so, we've seen, haven't we, many times, that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says something to the effect of, I'm going to Jerusalem, and it's there I'm going to suffer and die. The Son of Man must be despised and rejected by men, taking language from Isaiah's prophecies. He knows what's coming to him. We've even remarked multiple times in Luke's gospel, you get this kind of paradigm-shaping moment in chapter 9, verse 51, when we're told that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem because he knew he had a destiny date with death. He's an innocent Savior, but he's not an ignorant Savior. He goes willingly to the cross, as he says in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. He goes innocently, also silently, you see in the text too, that before his shearers, before his killers, before his enemies, he opened not his mouth. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? No greater injustice has ever been done to a human being than the injustice of Jesus Christ being killed. No greater disappointment has ever happened to an innocent person, and yet he said not nothing, for he knew what he was doing bearing the sin of many, as the passage will go on to say, representing covenantally the head of God's people. And he is going to be treated justly, for their sin will fall upon his shoulders. So he is the servant who will be exalted, 
will be rejected, will be crushed. Also, he will be slaughtered. And the fifth stanza says he will be satisfied. Some of you know the name of Johnny Bench, the great baseball player who is now infamous in more ways than one for his betting on baseball that resulted in his lifetime ban. And after years and years of denying that he had actually done it, he finally admitted, yes, I am guilty of the charges that I have been convicted of. And in this interview with a, uh, a reporter, he, he subsequently said this, people have to understand. I wish this would have never happened, but I can't change it. It, is, it has happened. And sitting here in my position, you're just looking for a second chance. And you might be in here this morning, sitting here in your position, looking for a second chance. Do wayward sinners, prone to wander into iniquity and transgression, get a second chance? Well, you can be assured that God gives you second chances through this servant. For notice, he will be satisfied. Look at the end of verse 10 through verse 11. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So you see an echo here of the prophecy, the good news to come, that Jesus Christ didn't stay dead. You know, if you ever read through the Old Testament pages, you might notice that blood flows like a, a torrential river through the Old Covenant. For blood was needed to pay the penalty for sin, to bring forgiveness to God's people. And so we see this whole sacrificial system is erected, blood flowing out of the temple, out of the tabernacle. But we do know from the Old Testament not a single one of those rams, gulls, boats, or, or sheep ever rose again. But here we have the prophecy of one like a lamb of God, perfect and spotless sheep that will rise again. For the Lord will not let him stay dead. Did you see that in verse 10? that he is going to prosper in the Lord's hand. He shall prolong his days. It even kind of gives a sense of what verse 9 says, that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It's this tension. He dies a criminal's death, but, he, but he's buried a rich man's burial. We know that's true from Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew chapter 27. This rich man taking Jesus' body, putting him in a tomb. And it's this tension of how is a man who's died a criminal's death yet going to get a rich man's burial. And it's because the Lord is pleased with his sacrifice and offering. He will not stay dead because sin has no wages that he can't pay. Satan has no chains that can keep him down. So the Lord will resurrect his son. But also notice the satisfaction that he will provide him a reward. For look at verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Like kings go off to war, to the victors belong the spoil, so will a spoil of souls belong to this servant, Savior. And notice the language is changing. In a previous verse, chapter 53, verse 6, we are called sheep. And notice what we are called in verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see what? His offspring. Turning and trusting in Jesus Christ means we go from wayward, stupid, dumb sheep that are always lost and can't rescue ourselves. 
and we become his offspring, his children of the Lord, father bringing into his family brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And so look at the end of verse 12. We're told that his work is not even just done. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So kids, if you have a Bible in front of you, you want to circle this word, intercession. Circle it in part because you might not know what it means. But circle it also because it's that important. So does anyone know, what does intercession mean? There is one mediator. We're told in the New Testament, one intercessor between God and Christ. And the root word means something like to cause, to reach. And so the appropriate picture for intercession is a bridge. That Jesus Christ, this servant, suffering, slaughtered Savior, He is the bridge between God the Father and sinful humanity in forgiving us of our sin. But we know from the Bible that He always lives, the book of Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. And so it's the continual bridge on which we can live as we as His children come to the Father for strength, for holiness, for wisdom, for guidance, for righteousness. He continues to make intercession for His people. He is God's servant for the guilty, this servant who will be exalted, this servant who will be rejected, crushed, slaughtered, and ultimately satisfied. So you can go back with me to Acts chapter 8 in this Ethiopian eunuch. Sitting in a chariot with Philip. He hears Philip preaching the gospel from Isaiah chapter 53 saying that servant Savior is none other than Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, and risen. And if you know the story, the Ethiopian eunuch looks to Philip and says, Hey, we're in the middle of the desert, but here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And I think too many Christians too often get caught up with the details of baptism to miss the heart of his question. Because if you want to understand the heart, you want to hear his question like this. What prevents me from being baptized? He's on his way back from Jerusalem. As a eunuch, he would have been unwelcome in Jerusalem. As an Ethiopian eunuch, he would have been doubly unwelcome in Jerusalem. Is there... Gospel news for me. Is this Savior of Israel for me too? And if you know the story, Philip says, yes, let's get down. And baptizes him into the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're asking that question this morning. Is this servant, Savior, even for me? Does he know what I have done? Does he know what I'm doing? And is he for me? I hope you're asking that question. It's news you're meant to hear. For if you look back to Isaiah 52, verse 7, we get this great text. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. It's language that the book of Romans picks up in chapter 10, verse 15, saying that preachers who proclaim Jesus Christ have beautiful feet because they bring the good news. And through his word and spirit, God means to publish, to announce, to place like news on a newspaper the good news, the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you're hearing it today. And so as we begin to close, what I want to do is just pull on two simple truths, summary truths, you might think of them, from this text that you have to hear in order to truly understand what God is doing with his servant, Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first thing you must hear is the bad news of your condition. You have to hear the bad news of your condition. Because Isaiah's readers, 
if you understand the book as a whole, may have been tempted to think that physical exile from the land of promise was their ultimate problem. That they needed a new exodus out of exile in order to get back to the land. But what God is saying is no. It's your spiritual exile from me that is the greatest problem that you have before you. Your alienation, you being far off from me. Because he's piling up in ways that you ought to just maybe read through this text later on this afternoon and look at it through this lens. Images, words, metaphors, and phrases to show us the depth of our sin. Transgressors, full of iniquity, all we like sheep. And you'll notice verse 6, everyone, uh, in parenthesis once again, every one of us have gone to our own ways. So we're talking about the great exchange of Jesus Christ. And so if you take the verbs that come before in verse 4 and 5, those really belong to us, don't they? We should be despised. We should be rejected. We should be pierced. We should be crushed. We should be slaughtered because of our sin. And you'll never know the good news if you don't first hear the bad news of your condition before God. But the good news is it doesn't stop there, does it? For you want to hear, secondly, the good news of God's provision. Don't just hear the bad news of your condition. Hear the good news of God's provision. Because look at these stunning statements that we do get in the song. Look at the end of verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the beginning of verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. I do think the old King James has a better translation, which is quite stunning and even startling. It was the delight of Yahweh to crush him. It makes sense then why Peter can say in Acts chapter 2 in this new covenant sermon on the day of Pentecost that Jesus Christ was delivered up to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. About 48 hours or so ago, I was running around some errands listening to a podcast, and it was an interview with a a lady who grew up in a Christian home, uh, professed evangelical faith in Jesus Christ, and in the intervening years, she's just rejected it outright, and she talked about her story kind of through this metaphor of this cross necklace she used to wear. She used to wear it all the time, and as time went on, she took it off more and more until she got to the point where she just no longer wore it at all. And she said this to the interviewer, and I quote, everything that the cross represented to me, it no longer held that for me anymore. Instead, it held judgment. It held trauma. It held everything that was the opposite of love. And it's saddening, isn't it? Because the Bible says the exact opposite. In this is love, 1 John 4. Not that we loved him, but what? That God gave his son as a propitiation for our sin. He got cursing. He got crushing. He got the slaughter because God loves us. Do you want to know what is not the opposite of love, but rather the perfect demonstration of God's love for you? You look to the cross of Calvary. For God has made a way in His Son. You must hear the good news of God's provision in His Son, Jesus Christ. So readers are waiting, aren't they? The arm of the Lord to be revealed. For this Redeemer to be high and lifted up. And we get a vision that says the arm of the Lord is going to be revealed. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, He's going to save His people. This Savior is going to be high and lifted up. But He's going to be high and lifted up on a cross. His arms are going to be outstretched 
nails driven through His hands. For this is what it means for God to pay the penalty for our sin. This is God's provision of a servant for guilty people like you and me. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we find redemption, in whom we have forgiveness through His perfect and precious blood. Lord, we do thank You that Your promises are always yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that even these these moving and at times heart-wrenching truths about who Jesus was going to be, let it remind us of the degree of grace and love that we find in Him. That indeed, as we read earlier, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become righteousness in him. And so help us, we pray, to trust in him. Help us to understand the bad news of our sin and the good news of our Savior. Finally, coming to you, if we have not, for the redemption that he alone can offer. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.